Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello and welcome to RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Oren Kennedy and today we're going to discuss addressing obesity, stigma and bias and how we can strengthen healthcare in Ireland. This series explores a wide range of areas in healthcare and brings together some of the leading experts in those areas with the goal of empowering people with the knowledge to make informed decisions about their own health and well-being. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by our panel, Dr. Grace O'Malley, Senior Lecturer in the School of Physiotherapy and Clinical Lead in the Child and Adolescent Obesity Service in Children's Health Ireland, Ms. Deirdre Murphy, Volunteer at the Irish Coalition for People Living with Obesity, and Dr. Elaine Byrne, Senior Lecturer in the Centre for Positive Psychology and Health here in RCSI. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. Grace, I might start with you with a simple question just to set the context. What actually is obesity and what's the definition of it? So obesity is a medical term used to describe a chronic condition where we have a buildup or an accumulation of fat tissue or adipose tissue, which causes problems to our health. So we're not talking just about people in larger bodies. We're talking about where levels of fat tissue are causing problems to someone's health. Um, and we diagnose it not just on body shape, uh, so height, weight, body mass index or waist circumference. That's one of the metrics we use. We also need to look at how heart health is um, affected, how lung health musculoskeletal health, um, liver health, for example. So we have a, a range of assessments that we use to give the diagnosis of obesity. If we're talking about people in larger bodies, we might, might use the term overweight or uh, being a, a weight above healthy level for that person's height. But there's a distinction between overweight and the disease of obesity. Okay, I might come to you next year to ask a similar question, but maybe from a patient perspective. What are the common misconceptions that people have in the general public about obesity? Um, a lot of people would think that those of us who live with obesity um, are lazy, um, that we lack motivation, that we're unfit, um, that we don't want to exercise, um, and that we eat all day long or that we eat massive amounts of food, and none of them are correct. Um, and Elaine, if I come to you next and just ask, it seems like there's a lot of stigma around the condition. So what actually is stigma? When you say the word, people might recognise it, but what's the definition of it? If we look at Goffman's definition, it's a undesirable or discrediting attribute um, of an individual, and that kind of lowers their status in the eyes of society. And what's important here is, is talking about the eyes of society. So it's not necessarily evidence-based or evidence-informed. It's, it's what people believe or think. So it's really a mark of shame that's placed on an individual. And it can have a huge impact in terms of how people perceive themselves and how others perceive them. And what's important to look at is it's, it's embedded in a kind of a powerful social process that's rooted in kind of cultural, political um, and social um, kind of context. So it's not just, I mean, I think, Grace, you were talking about that. It's not just the will of the person in terms of their weight. These things are deep rooted. So because of that, it's pervasive. We see it in the media, in the workplace, on the TV. It's, it's everywhere. And is, it, um, is that stigma in general or can it be specified to obesity stigma? But that's kind of stigma in general. I mean, I think with obesity, there's kind of two factors at play in terms of obesity stigma. 
One is this kind of obsession we have with this thin ideal, I call it, that somehow if you're this particular shape, size, look, walk and talk, whatever it is, that you're going to have a great life, that all your problems are going to be solved. And then on the other hand, it's what Grace referred to, is this kind of view that it's the personal responsibility. And Kite recently in June 2022 um, did a review of how um, the influence of weight stigma in in the media. And the dominant discourse was on this individual responsibility and really very little attention to the systemic roots of obesity stigma. And is there just one type of stigma then or are there different types of stigma that people need to know about? Yeah, you could go into, I mean, I think there's, there's, I don't know how much debate over that and people would disagree and argue over them. But I think simply put, for us to understand stigma, there's kind of three areas I would focus on. The first is what we would call enacted or stigma you have experienced. The second one would be kind of perceived or anticipated, what you think might happen. And I think the third one doesn't get enough attention, which I, I think is is that when you start believing those thoughts yourself, internalized stigma or self-stigma. So you start having a negative mindset about yourself. And that manifests itself then in kind of shame and guilt and lowering, lowering self-esteem and sometimes even kind of self-loathing. So is that a difference then between the stigma that the general pop- population might have for somebody versus self-stigma? Yeah, well, interesting, what's quite interesting, we can talk about kind of social stigma. And with self-stigma, we find that with a lot of illnesses, self-stigma can even be higher than the social stigma. So you're kind of harder on yourself. Not alone do you believe those kind of misconceptions, but you internalise them to a greater extent than even society does. Thanks. And Deirdre, I might come back to you on that one. Do you want to share your thoughts or perspectives on um, self-stigma in particular? Yep. Um, as Elaine said, uh, self-stigma can actually be worse than, you know, social stigma or anything else. Um, and it's, you know, we can be harder on ourselves than you would ever be on anybody else. Um, you know, for anybody in the general public to think, you know, how you speak to yourself, you would never speak to your best friend like that. Um, you would never speak to your child like that, I hope. Um, and if you ever heard someone speaking like that, you would tell them to stop. Um, but self-stigma, is, it can be really, really damaging. It can come from, you know, expectations that we believe we are going to be treated in a certain way um, or from past experiences. Um, and sometimes you might need to just sit down and say, actually, will that really happen? You know, if I go to the shops, will people look at me or will I just think that people are looking at me? And Elaine, I might come back to you on that one. Does that weight stigma actually impact health as well, physical health as well? Yes, and I'm sure um, kind of the other panel members will kind of come back in terms of how it impacts in particular kind of sectors and experience you have. Um, but for me, the important part with um, kind of self-stigma in particular is people start withdrawing. And it's this idea that it's the, as you were mentioning, the anticipated or or the fear that it might happen. So you stop accessing health services. And I think what's also important at play here is other stigmas as well. So we find women who are living with obesity kind of often have a greater impact in terms of stigma. And it's shown that women um, um, living with obesity often don't access kind of cancer treatment for fear of being embarrassed. 
And the other part, we were talking about how you kind of stop doing things. You can often disengage from activities that you enjoy for fear or, or experience. Um, and it's what we call languishing. And I think if you've kind of listened to some of these other My Health series, you may have heard the term flourishing, which is kind of living as best you can in the condition you're in. And it's about having those kind of positive emotions, the engagement, the relationships, the kind of accomplishments that you have and meaning in life. And if you start withdrawing from all your networks and your activities, you start losing that. So it has a greater impact on your overall health, as well as not actually act accessing kind of healthcare services. Thanks, Elaine. And Grace, I'm going to come back to you on that one. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I suppose there's four things I'd consider. And the first one would be that there's a misconception by healthcare professionals that obesity is something under conscious control. And while the amount of fat tissue that we make in our body and how we store it and how we maintain it, maintain it is influenced by health behaviours like physical activity, sleep, eating behaviour. Um, the factors that influence those behaviours are not often under our control. So our biology or our genetics, our socioeconomic status or indeed the effect of medicines that we might be on. And the second factor that sometimes health professionals can um, incorrectly assume is that people living with obesity may not have already been trying to manage their obesity in the past. Um, so they may actually come to the health professional having a long history of, of trying to um, influence the level of fat tissue in their body. And they may already have had great success and they may be at, the, at a point of, of success in that journey, but to the outside eye, it may not look like um, they have. Um, and that's where it's so important to not assume based on a, a physical appearance. So for health professionals to ask um, what the previous journey of, of weight management or obesity management has been is a, is a really key um, question to ask people coming forward for health services. Another um, aspect I think that can be incorrectly assumed is that a simple eat less, move more um, approach is going to work for people who have high levels of obesity or high levels of fat tissue in their body. So, of course, for general health, we all need to move. Um, we need to enjoy our lives. We need to have fun. We need to sleep. We need to um, eat well and nourished um, eat. We need to eat well and we need to have a, a really well-balanced um, nutrition. But um, these are kind of prevention approaches. So when somebody with obesity comes for help, we need to be much more personalized with our, with our attempts to help them. So trying to understand how can we modify this type of advice, first of all, for somebody who um, is living in their context with their level of obesity is important. And then have they accessed health professional support in the past? So have they actually seen a GP or a physician in the past around obesity management? Have they seen a Kuru registered health professional like a dietitian, a psychologist, a physiotherapist? I mean, if they haven't, then maybe we need to get those referrals in place. If they have and that hasn't been successful, then we need to think about other approaches. So looking at clinical practice guidelines would be the first um, start. And the, the final misconception I would say probably that's important for people to be, to be aware of is maybe the health professional's idea that success equals weight loss. Um, and, and that's not the case. So in, there are some cases where we actually do not want weight loss. So, for example, if you're dealing with children or adolescents, if you're dealing with people with pregnancy, if you're talking about people pre-surgery, um, weight loss is a very blunt idea because you could be restricting fluid, you could be reducing mu muscle mass. 
And really what we're trying to do with treatment is reduce fat mass. So um, that's where that kind of health professional support is so important. We're not talking about just reducing weight. Success is much more holistic than that. And you're trying to address the complications of obesity first. Then think about maybe uh, fat mass lost and uh, weight maintenance, perhaps. That might be the ideal outcome for the particular person in front of you. It's really interesting. It seems so important to get the context right. Can I go back to you then, Deirdre? Any, any final thoughts on just getting the context and background right on, uh, on uh, weight stigma and impact on health? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's knowing when is the right time to discuss weight with someone. Um, you know, if someone is in an emergency situation, it is not the right time to discuss their weight with them. Um, and it's also good to ask their permission if they want to discuss their weight. Um, a lot of people living with obesity, we discuss it day in, day out, and we're exhausted from discussing it and from going on diets and from talking to friends and from trying and trying and trying. And, and sometimes we just want to break from it. And it's OK to take a break from dealing with it for a time. So ask permission before you bring it up. I think that's really useful and really interesting conversation in terms of setting the scene. So I thought we might go next on to how we might address the situation. So Elaine, can I come back to you and just ask how you think we can address stigma and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, as you've heard here, I mean, it's obviously a, not an individual intervention at that level. It's kind of a whole systems approach that's needed. But one thing I'd like to kind of say is, is that I, we seem to focus on what is the matter with people. So we kind of focus on kind of obesity trends, on their kind of weight, on their BMI, on the um, kind of cholesterol. And we need to do that in terms of kind of treatment. But very rarely in these discussions do we actually ask, you know, what matters to you? Very rarely do we have the voice of the people who are living with obesity in there looking at solutions, looking at policies, looking at strategies. And I think that really is, is, is very useful because I think it informs in the way in, in which the healthcare um, practitioners work. But also it gives the space for people living with obesity to also reflect on what they actually want and what is obesity preventing or enabling them to do. And I'd like to just kind of give an, give an example of that if I can. I work with a Irish NGO called Beyond Stigma. And they work largely in lower and middle income countries um, and have focused on kind of people living with HIV, TB um, and a few other areas. But recently, Dr. Brendan O'Shea, with people from Beyond Stigma and also a kind of researcher, looked at obesity in Ireland and they looked at a particular intervention um, that they used and called the inquiry based stress reduction. But Dr. Brendan O'Shea wrote in the Irish Medical Times around particularly clinicians dealing with kind of um, overweight spectrum and obesity and when to bring it up in the conversation. What he found out from these workshops that they ran, he said that he, as a clinician and other clinicians, seemed to focus on kind of complications and adherence, and that's where the focus is. But the people in the workshop unilaterally were more interested in the impact of self-stigma and stigma on themselves. So it shows that we're looking at it from two very different perspectives. And if we don't bring both in, I don't think we're going to actually address it. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating um, area. Can, we, can I turn to you with that question then, Deirdre? Yeah, so it's, it's all about redefining what success is. Success is not losing 10 stone. You know, it's fantastic to lose 10 stone, but what does that give you? 
You know, um, we, we run a group for patients um, who have had bariatric surgery. And one of the first big, what we call non-scales um, non victories is, um, you know, getting on an airplane and being able to fasten the seatbelt without having to put up your hand and say, can I have an extension? And the whole plane looking at you. Or being able to get on the floor and play with your children. You know, being able to run after your child. Being able to sit on a swing. You know, simple little things. Being able to get in and out of a car. Um, you know, not having to worry about where you're going to park because you need enough room to be able to get out of the car. Um, even going for a walk in the park. You know, those gates that they put that you have to move. Will I fit through the gate? You know, will I be able to go for my walk if I cannot fit through the gate? You know, losing 10 stone, you might not need to lose 10 stone to be able to do any of those. You know, maybe losing three or four stone might get you to be able to play with your children or to, you know, walk a little bit further or to improve your quality of life. But also losing 10 stone won't fix your life. It won't fix all the problems in your life. And I think people concentrate so hard on if I could only lose the weight. Whereas if you reframe it to if I could get more mobile or if I could improve my health or if I could get out more, um, I think it would be much more helpful and much more easier to track the benefits um, rather than just focusing on the numbers of the scales because that gets a bit depressing. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Can I come back to you, Grace, then on that one? So how do we address the weight stigma and bias that's in healthcare at the moment and what are the current best practices? So how do they relate to what we've just heard from Deirdre? I think, that, like with any, anybody coming to use the health service, we need to treat people with respect. So it doesn't matter what the condition is, respect is the, the first step. Um, but we probably need to acknowledge that in general society, we mostly have a, a bias for people who look larger than us. Um, and we're conditioned through media, through culture, to have that. Like Elaine spoke about the thin ideal. Um, so we need to acknowledge that first within ourselves and then reflect and inquire within ourselves whether it affects how we think about the referral in front of us, whether we assess this person in the same way clinically that we would somebody who doesn't have obesity and whether we make a treatment plan for them um, in a different way to how we might do it for somebody without obesity. Um, and from the research, we know that this, this happens so that um, a clinical assessment might be different for somebody with obesity. We may find that we don't have equipment that's large enough or a blood, blood pressure cuff that's large enough. And instead of making sure we have a blood pressure cuff that's large enough, we don't record the blood pressure. We don't take the blood pressure. Um, having gowns that are large enough for people to have dignity when they come into health healthcare settings. Um, so training, I think, for healthcare professionals is really essential that we don't have a hidden, hidden curriculum where we have words that are well-meaning, but then kind of a non-verbal communication about obesity that's eye-rolling and, oh, here we go again, this type of thing. Um, and then as health professionals, we have to be really keen, listen, listen and, and watch for how people with obesity are treated by our colleagues or in our health settings. So if we hear disparaging comments, if we have... Um, people who are training health professional students or medical students, and we, we see language that's discriminatory or actions that are discriminatory, we have to call them out, which is, which is hard, um, but we have to start to do that. Yeah. So training is important. Um, acknowledging our own bias, seeing it um, in other people, but holding others by the hand, not uh, wagging the finger, I think. Bringing each other by the hand. Um, I've been working in this area 20 years, and I can put my hand up and say I was biased as well at the beginning. 
um, because we come with our own lens. We only see through the lens that we have until we listen properly to others and understand the lived experience particularly and understand that much of what we were taught 20 years ago doesn't apply now and that actually the science of obesity has changed. We understand mechanisms a lot better. We understand <clears throat> the, the impact of the market and how, for example, advertising and marketing has a massive impact on health behaviours. So I think key things are, are training, being able to acknowledge within ourselves and then address if, if we do sense that we have an unconscious bias. Yeah, it's really interesting. You kind of got to my next question, actually, which I might just put back to the rest of the panel, which was, it seems like we have a lot of information from the clinical aspect, from patient aspect, from research aspect, but how do we go about implementing that um, you know, more widely in society, given that we have that information now? So can I put that back out to the panel? Well, I think one thing is like having conversations like this. Um, there's also quite a lot out there in terms of different interventions. So you, you mentioned the research part of it. I've just recently been involved in a review of interventions to address self-stigma in people living with HIV with colleagues in, in the Beyond Stigma group. And there's a lot of um, interventions out there that are actually very successful. They're, they're largely kind of psychosocial, they're kind of cognitive based, but it does show you that, you know, that process you were talking about, Deirdre, you know, sitting and reflecting about, you know, is that really a true belief? Do I have evidence for that? You know, sometimes you need assistance with that because you're so blinded by your own thoughts and realizing that, you know, this is what I want to achieve. And maybe, you know, obesity is, is part of that, but there's many other things that are there. It's not in isolation. And so sometimes I think looking at those interventions and having a structured approach can make you realize how you are viewing yourself, you know, and you might find that, you know, there's the assistance within the healthcare services or within support organizations like the coalition that can help you with that. Can I come back to you on that one as well, Deirdre? Like, what, how, how can we implement more broadly, do you think? Um, I, I think it can start like even at an individual level. So for people just to speak more, you know, speak to your friends, speak to your family. If people are saying things that you don't agree with or they're being derogatory, call them out on it. Ask them why they believe that. Or, you know, if they're saying, oh, you know, just don't eat, don't eat that and you'll be fine. Call them out and say why, you know, and try and challenge their behaviour but also talk to other people, talk to other people who live with obesity. You know, don't sit at home by yourself thinking you're the only one. Um, there's lots of us out there um, and there's plenty of support available. You just need to know where to find it. And that's where the ICPO come in. Um, we run weekly support group meetings um, and we have done since the beginning of COVID. We had them online initially and we're now trying to have more face to face. And it's amazing to see people grow throughout the different meetings and to speak up more and to gain more confidence. Um, and we've even helped people write letters to healthcare professionals saying, you know, I was at an appointment and these comments upset me. And addressing it from their perspective to show clinicians how they felt by a throwaway comment. Um, and things like that are really helpful because we do it as a community. Whereas I myself probably wouldn't be able to write a letter like that. But with the help of people like the ICPO, you know, we do it together. Um, and as, as a group, it's much easier. Um, so talking is one of the best things, even coming along to meetings and just listening to other people to hear you're not the only one um, and there is help out there. 
Yeah, yeah, it's invaluable work, I think, that the, the group too, yeah. And so, um, can I come down back to you, Grace, on that? Do you think there's anything else we can do for implementation? Yeah, so I suppose, um, training-wise, the Association for the Study of Obesity in Ireland, the ASOI, who work very uh, yeah, closely with the ICPO, um, we have various training courses available. There's, um, we've just launched the Irish Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Treatment of Obesity in Adults, and there's a really nice uh, chapter on stigma, which is address, addressing health professionals, but also patients um, and people with obesity. Um, so I think for the health professionals who are trying to get started and trying to you know, put one step forward without making a mistake, um, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to use words that you know, might not be um, ideal at the beginning, but it's really important to watch how they land so that you can develop your understanding um, with working with patients and building that therapeutic alliance and asking patients, well, what terms do you prefer to use in terms of obesity or weight? Um, how, how will we talk about it? Some people prefer the word fat. Some people prefer the word obesity, overweight. It, it, but the important thing is to ask. So training is available through ASOI. And we'll also be hosting training and workshops for the European Congress on Obesity, um, which we'll host in Dublin in 2023. If there's people worried about this issue in children or adolescents, we have some online training available at childhoodobesity.ie. Um, and I think as Elaine and Deirdre mentioned, just really speaking to one another and as health professionals learning from each other, talking to our dietitian colleagues, our physios, our psychologists, social workers, all the health healthcare team learning from each other. Um, because like Deirdre mentioned, there's lots of... Uh, ideas of what success is. Um, so it's not just about weight. Um, one of the things that comes up quite often in healthcare is the, this idea of patient engagement and if, if patients don't turn up for appointments. Um, and instead of addressing maybe the health professional or the treatment we're offering, um, there is a tendency to blame the patient and say that, no, they're not a good patient or they don't engage or they're not interested rather than reflecting on, well, maybe my treatment isn't good enough or maybe the way I'm working with this person isn't good enough. So I think that's a really important um, aspect for people who like you know, to think administratively around their health care delivery. If there's non-attendances, we need to ask why. You need to look at the letters that are written to the patients and see what's the language like, what's the tone like. Is it one that's inclusive and when the patient reads it, they, oh, it looks like they want to see me or is it very obvious that, maybe they'd prefer if you didn't turn up because they're very busy and they've long waiting lists. So that language is really important. And these kind of practical changes in our service have definitely made a difference. Um, and just asking, asking the service users. But also ask why they didn't show up. Did they not show up because maybe they couldn't get there? Um, maybe it was going to take them three buses to get there. Um, and maybe they weren't physically able to get on three buses that day. Maybe they couldn't afford a taxi to go to the far side of the city. Like the resources aren't available locally. People do have to travel. Maybe they didn't have childcare and you can't take your children to appointments anymore because of COVID. Um, so maybe finding out, would it be better to do the appointment online or is there any accommodation that they can make for you know, these patients rather than just saying, you didn't show up, you don't get another appointment. Find out why. That actually leads on to my next question, because it sounds like um, from one point of view that there's a lot being done, you know, on the healthcare side, on the um, uh, patient advocacy side. But is there, are, are we on the right track? Is there more we can be doing? Oh, that's a question for the whole panel. Maybe I can come back to you, Elaine, first. 
there's a lot of resources out there and they, there'll be links here to the organisations that are mentioned and we can, as individuals, all of us look and learn more. Um, but I think what I'd like to say is for the person living with obesity, I think it's fine to be, to have an inner critic, to start kind of querying your beliefs and stuff like that. But don't use it as a stick to beat yourself up with. It, it's nice to sometimes, you know, take a stand back and go, you know, why have I done that? But not in, in such a way that, as you were mentioning, that you'd never have a friend like that. You know, you'd, you'd leave their company. So for me, I think to be supportive, I think you have to support yourself Firstly, and then for other people um, who are living with people with obesity, it's, it's up to us to kind of educate ourselves and look at the resources that are available there. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, and there's, there's a lot more to be done. There's always more to be done. Um, and we need more patient advocates. We need patients to speak out. We need their help. We need their help you know, to educate their friends, their families, to educate their doctors um, and to educate, you know, their physiotherapists or their dietitians or everybody they come in contact with, you know, that, that obesity is an illness. It's not a choice. We didn't choose this. Nobody would choose to live with obesity. Um, if we could shake it off in the morning, we would, you know, we would move mountains um, to lose the weight and to be healthy. Um, and if we all talk and we all support each other, um, I think we can move forward. What about Grace? Any, anything more we can be doing on the healthcare side, do you think? Be kind to yourself and try your best because everybody's working, for, they are working very hard and health professionals have good intentions and they, they try their best. Um, but try not to do harm and just be aware of your, you know, your verbal and your nonverbal communication that sometimes just that little 10 seconds of authenticity and actually engaging with your patient can be a very active ingredient. And this is a newly emerged condition, you know, it's, and that's because of the environment we're in. So that discussion of whether it's an individual's fault or the societal responsibility, I mean, the evidence is really clear that people will have a genetic predisposition and if they're in an environment that's obesogenic, they will develop obesity. So we all have a responsibility to understand that and then to, to try and prevent as much as possible we can in terms of whole system approaches. And then when people do have obesity, to offer them care, compassionate care and care that works for them at an individual level. Thanks, Grace. So just in wrapping up then, uh, can we go through the panel and just get some take-home messages today for our audience? Elaine, we might start with you. One of the things we need to recognise is stigma and self-stigma exist with questionable evidence base. And I think what we need to do all as individuals is to be kind of critical of what we're saying, but from the perspective of kind of self-compassion and self-worth. Thanks, Elaine. And Deirdre, how about you? What's your take-home message for our audience today? Um, for people living with obesity, um, please don't hide away at home on your own. Um, there is help and support out there. There are fantastic medical professions out there. If you're unfortunate to meet the wrong one, try another one. Um, I have found some very supportive GPs, some dietitians, some surgeons, endocrinologists, and they have all been fantastic. I've been really lucky. Um, so they do exist and they are out there. Also, find your tribe. Um, we are there. There's lots of us. Um, and, you know, we can help and support you on your journey. Um, come join the ICPO. Come to our support group meetings. Um, you know, come onto our online pages um, and get some support when you need it. That's great. That sounds like great advice. Thanks. And Grace, can we come to you for some last take-home messages from the healthcare perspective? Um, listen to one another and listen to the service users, the patients that come to see you. 
um, at the very least, go to the SOI website so you can look at the clinical practice guidelines and there's some summary points that you can read um, and then consider joining ASOI and then hopefully keep May 17th to 20th 2023 free and avail of some really excellent training as well for obesity. Okay thanks very much I think that concludes our discussion here today so I'd like to say a big thank you to our panelists and to our speakers Dr Grace O'Malley, Dr Elaine Byrne and Deirdre Murphy. From all of us here at RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health-related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash myhealthlectures.